last week, uh, it was Lego. Kids, remember this Lego structure? It was a visual to help us see the position that is ours in Christ. And which one was Jesus? Do you remember? Yeah, he's the guy with the helmet here. Uh, Don't know if that's what Jesus wears, but in our little scenario here, he does. And Jesus, by what he has done for us, by God's grace and power and love, lifted us up. We're these guys. We're seated with Jesus in the heavenly places so that we can serve the world, which is that green space down below. But have you ever noticed how many stories are about opposites coming together? So take Woody here, for instance. This is, a, uh, this is Woody from our family's home, and one of our kids got hold of a Sharpie and turned him into a pirate. But think about Woody. Who does Woody, the cowboy, work with? He works with Buzz Lightyear. But Woody and Buzz are very different. One's a cowboy. He's an old toy, and you pull his string, and he talks. There's a snake in my boot, right? But Buzz is the polar opposite of a, on the toy solar system. He's an intergalactic space ranger with all the latest gadgets and buttons. And, but the intertwined theme of four, four Toy Story movies is how these two opposites discover how to work together. They're both toys. They're connected by Andy, the boy, Who loves them? What about Elsa over here? This is Elsa, if you don't know and aren't aware. Elsa is the frozen princess of the Frozen movies with icy superpowers. She's unique. And sometimes she's alone in the world where her powers set her apart from others. She's the opposite of her sister, Anna. And now Anna's a normal girl, and this sometimes frustrates her when she compares herself to her superpower sister, And a dominant theme of two Frozen movies is how these opposites discover how to work together. Connected to a kingdom, they're called to lead with animated benevolence. For those of you a bit older, you might remember Mutt and Jeff, the story of two mismatched blokes. It was the first daily comic strip. It ran for 76 years And all these stories share a common theme. There's something beautiful and sometimes even comical when opposites work together. Even romantic comedies and every blessed Hallmark film that follows exactly the same script is about opposites. It's about this theme. And I hadn't thought much about this until my son Micah wrote a story a couple years ago called The Big Wolf. And it's the story about how a big wolf that no one wants to play with comes to be a friend with other critters when a little ant decides to become his friend and breaks down the barriers between critters. Now, where did an eight-year-old boy get this idea from? And I began to wonder if all these tales are actually rooted in the image of God that we share as human beings. Opposites attract. We want to pull together. And we see this in these contagious days. How do we work together when we can't be together? But this isn't always easy, is it? It's not always ideal. Families should pull together. And we're households of opposites in cabin fever 2020. And that's exposing a lot of things in generous quantities, isn't it? Do we always pull together in our families? Now, there's anger, arguments, abuse, sometimes divorce. Sometimes families end up no longer talking to one another. 
These all litter our family stories, don't they? Some are even hesitant now to start families because it's so hard and seems oppositional. Churches should pull together, and we're trying to figure out how to do that now in new ways, but will we stay connected as a community when we can't function like we once did and are prone to consume and wander? What if we just get spiritually fat now and grow communally lazy? What if church just becomes the teacher or the speaker like this that you follow rather than the people, the ecclesia, the people of God in your place and space? Nations, well, they should pull together. And we're all trying to figure out how to do that now. But what will fear and self-interest do to us? Arbitrary borders that are drawn on land often become lines in the sand that we're willing to war over. COVID-19 is exposing our oppositional extremes as well. The Iranian Republican Guard is apparently hoarding and reselling what's needed to fight COVID-19 while their own people suffer. The economics editor of Sky News in Europe, Ed Conway, wrote in the London Times, don't take this the wrong way. But if you were a young hardline environmentalist looking for the ultimate weapon against climate change, you could hardly design anything better than coronavirus. This week in Al Jazeera, an article revealed that far-right neo-Nazi groups see coronavirus as precisely what we need to bring about a real national uprising and a strengthening of revolutionary political forces. Joshua Fisher-Birch of the U.S.-based counter-extremism project says extremists are seeing an opportunity to try to increase tension and advocate for violence. The extremes reveal the powers that bind us. Hmm. Nations war. Nations war within nations. Opposites hate. All these opposites in collision make up most of the news when we're not watching Pandemic 2020. So you see, we live this real tension in the real world, a world that's full of opposites. And all this tension that we experience doesn't even to take into account the greatest challenge of all, which is how will God and human beings work together? Though we're made in God's image, we're not God. God and humanity are more opposite than you and any other person you are trying to figure out life with. And perhaps we desire stories of opposites because it massages our deepest need to understand how we reconcile with not just one another, but with our maker, with Andy, who loves both Woody and Buzz to understand how we work, not just for ourselves, but for greater purpose with a kingdom that both Elsa and Anna seek the good of together. Is there really a way to bring opposites together in the real world? Well, we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22 today. Now, before we, before we read it, I, 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 it's important that we grasp this point. Okay, pay attention. It is God's idea to bring opposites together and make us one. One for our good and for his glory. God is determined 
to restore and reconcile us to himself and to one another. After all, God is perfect oneness, the perfect oneness of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what God does is always consistent with his nature. And this is what Paul wanted the proud Ephesians to know in the city of of change. Now remember, Christians are seated, right? Christians are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is our position. It's like we've been chosen to be the never-ending teacher's helper in kindergarten. This is our position and identity. We are elevated to a position and authority that belongs to our great teacher, to Jesus Christ. And it's from this position that we live in and serve in the world of opposites. But we're not in this position alone, are we? It's not just me or you sitting by yourself in that space and position and identity beside Jesus. No, we're a communion of opposites. If you look around, you discover you're not alone in that authoritative position beside Jesus. How can any good works then come from us when we have such a history of hostilities? This is what Paul is addressing now in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to what he says, follow along. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Now, Paul is addressing Gentile, the Gentile disciples, the uncircumcised. And kids, here's a little homework project. You can ask your parents to explain that one. Uh, Paul's addressing these uncircumcised Gentiles in Ephesus. And the vast majority of the church in Ephesus would have come from these Gentile Artemis-worshipping backgrounds. Now we have to back up in the scriptures a little bit because in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham to trust him and give him an incredible promise. Genesis chapter 12 says this, God speaks to Abraham and says, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And listen, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, Abraham was especially chosen by God. And he's called to a radical, throw all your eggs in the basket, trust in God's promises. And Abraham's trust would result in a unique standing with God. And he and his descendants would bless all peoples. That's God's promise. The predetermined plan of God is to form a people for himself, a people distinct from all others on the planet who would be holy, his holy, unique vessels, the community of God's blessing for the whole world. Abraham's family would become this window into the world restored by God, the creator, and his purposes for creation. And this was all God's initiative. 
and all God's choice. And then in Genesis chapter 17, God makes a big ask. Abraham and his male descendants would bear a mark, a reminder that they carry a blessed identity and calling. God gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision, the everlasting sign that God will keep his promise. And from then on, every male descendant of Abraham loses something. And the Jews become the circumcised and the Gentiles then are the uncircumcised. And any Jew opting out of this, in Genesis chapter 17, God says, anyone opting out of this of Abraham's descendants would be cut off from his people since they're disregarding God's plan to bless the nations. They are putting self before blessing. And so the real issue all along, though, was not the physical mark. The real issue was the heart. Circumcision marked a heart surrendered to God's choice and the one true God's plan to bless the nations. And so wherever ritual replaced a surrendered heart, the true meaning of circumcision was lost. And that's what the Old Testament prophets repeatedly said to the Jews. God's choice didn't mean they were better than others. It meant they had a unique responsibility for the sake of others. And this required a soft and a humble heart so that the Gentiles could also hope in and know the one true God. Now, do you catch it? That's precisely what Paul himself is now living as a Jewish apostle to the Gentiles. And so there's a lot behind what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. The Jews carried this promise of God's blessing and the uncircumcised Gentiles like me and probably most of you, unless you have some Jewish heritage, were without hope and without God in the world, even though they told stories and made idols hoping something else could be true. Our Gentile passions, and here we have to be super honest because... We don't, I don't share uh, Jewish heritage. I am a Gentile. And our Gentile passions and thinking are shaped by powers, the powers of the kingdom of the air, this middle tier that we talked about last week. We follow the course of the world. That's what Paul said at the beginning of Ephesians 2. Jewish thinking was always shaped by God's heavenly call on Abraham, the deliverance, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt and the law given from the heavenly place to Moses. Jews weren't perfect, but their way of life was shaped by God in the most unique way. Gentiles especially, we were idolaters, selfish, warring, broken and barbaric. If you study your own Gentile family history, you may be sadly uh, disturbed by what you find. What hope was there for us? This is what Paul wants the Gentile Christians in Ephesus to remember. Gentiles weren't circumcised, but they were cut off in even more terrible ways. We were without hope and without God in the world. The circumcised Jews were a people who carried hope for us all. And they stood as a sign of another reality in the human drift toward hopeless selfishness and separation and even violence. 
And that drift is distinctly and often disturbingly seen in the way we Gentiles, the uncircumcised, live, act, and follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But now, right? This is the whole hope of Ephesians. But now in Christ, God has revealed a new mystery. Jew and Gentile, the opposites, could be one. The challenge and opportunity of the church, the ecclesia, the called out people of God who take responsibility for their time and place, the challenge and the opportunity of the church is that we are a communion of opposites. The church is Jew and Gentile. Now, how will this work? How would Jew and Gentile be the good work that God had prepared in advance for us to do? That's where we ended last week in verse 10. That leads us to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile them both to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Stop there. The, the human dilemma of opposites seems so impossible to overcome. We get along, right? And then we don't. We tagline things like, we are all Canucks. And then what happens when there's no Canucks? We long for the stories we tell to be real. But how? This is what Paul is saying. But now, in Christ Jesus, this is the great hope. Jesus Christ comes into the visible world to defeat the powers that deceive us. And God's mysterious good news, which surprises the world, who thinks God's plan is all wrong, brings all, Jew and Gentile, into his family. The creator we spurned did it. It's grace mercy and love. The world is crumbling. My soul is in tatters. We are in conflict. Relationships are strained. Creation groans. We are keepers of Artemis and whatever other proud identities we've built up for ourselves. But God, God comes to us, God in our flesh, and Jesus, he becomes our peace in his flesh he broke down the dividing wall of hostility, says Paul here, right? Paul is speaking, you see, from his own Jewish heritage in this one. You see, when King Herod the Great built the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in 19 BC, it included a court for the Gentiles, a space that the Gentiles could come to, where they could gather to pray to the one true God, Yahweh. And this was visited by many foreigners, there was a low wall separating the Gentile court from the temple enclosure. It was called the Sorek that had 13 openings to allow the Jews to get into the inner courts of the temple closer to God. No Gentile was ever permitted past that wall. 
warning signs were posted in three different languages. And one of these signs is in a museum in Istanbul that reads this. No foreigner is allowed past this point on penalty of death. So what do you think Paul is saying? The wall of hostility that Jews had built to separate them from the Gentiles and ultimately Gentiles from God has been run through, bulldozed and obliterated by God himself. Jesus took the hostile cross that the political and religious power set up so that we can be one, called out, grace-receiving, spirit-filled humanity. By Jesus' blood, we who are aware, who were far off, can draw near. The dividing wall of hostility that we set up, and we keep setting them up, don't we? These wall, this wall is destroyed, not by hammers, not by our ideologies, which ultimately sometimes seem to have the result of causing more walls. None of this comes down our way. It comes down by the love of God. And because none of us earned it, there's nothing to fight about, except to admit that we're all uncircumcised in heart. We were all dead. We were hostiles, but God. Safari Mutabisha is an African Tutsi, a fellow member of our Global Mennonite Brethren family. He's a young, he, was, he was a young boy when he witnessed his parents viciously murdered. Years later, after being displaced from Congo to Rwanda and then to Burundi, Safari ended up in a Malawi refugee camp of 27,000 people. He had learned the way of the blessing kingdom of God. And then he discovered that the very man who had murdered his father had come into that same refugee camp. Safari describes what happens next. He says this, I found the man all alone and I started to tremble. Here was the man in charge of the operation that killed my parents. My brother, how are you? I said, do you remember me? I'm the son of the person you killed. You killed my father. But my brother, I told him, you are good. It's not you that killed. It's the thing inside of you that is bad. Come to my house, I invited. It's your time to receive Christ. And he accepted for three years, ha, huh, listen, for three years, Safari says, he was in my house. And now he's one of the pastors in our church. A number of years ago, I had just joined the staff of a church family when they released the lead pastor. It was a very painful time. And in the mess, the church asked me to step in as an interim lead pastor and this, of course, created conflict between that former lead pastor and myself. He'd been my mentor, actually, and I, I respected him, and he felt betrayed by me, that I wasn't loyal, that I had stabbed him in the back, which none of that was true at all, but it's what he felt. And we had these awkward conversations, and one day 
as I struggled in prayer to work this all through, wrestling with the churnings in my soul, I had a picture of me washing his feet. And I held on to that as a promise of what could be. Five years later, I was at a leadership meeting with other church leaders, and that brother is there. And we were invited to consider Jesus' example in John 13 of washing his disciples' feet. And towels and buckets were brought out, and the vision became very real, a kairos moment. And I walked over, and I knelt down, and I washed his feet, and we hugged, and we committed to a new way of walking out the good works that God had prepared in advance for us to do. Brokenness and hostility find us. Sometimes we cause it. Sometimes we inherit it. We all suffer from it. But he himself is our peace. In Jesus, the dividing wall comes down. The hostility hostility stirred by the powers is killed. And a new humanity is formed. Our job, our job is to live into that reality from our shared position in Christ. We are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to one another. The cross morphs from an instrument of hostility into a sign of peace and hope. In fact, my friends, there is no lasting transformative peace without the cross of Jesus and a people who have surrendered their rights and are now a people of the cross. Jesus Christ, the humble overcomer, becomes our Lord and our leader. He promises, he is the promise to the Jews fulfilled for all. And we can live and work together doing the good works that God has prepared for us to do as those seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are the saints, the chosen and adopted. We have the same father and brother. We share the same spirit. We are heirs together. We are saved by the same grace and we didn't earn a thing. And we now get to work at being brothers and sisters together. The city might change. The circumstances of history might change and we are fellow citizens of an unchanging hope. The world may shake, but we are at peace. Verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives By his spirit, Jesus Christ is the Lord of history and the Lord of the church. He is making opposites what they were meant to be. He is the cornerstone. He holds the household, God's temple and dwelling place together. And we stay close to one another by staying close to him. The apostles and prophets of God's work in history point us in Jesus' direction. Gentile and Jew 
are the, the ecclesia, the one humanity held together by Christ as the cornerstone. Our differences, you see, are not obliterated. They are harnessed and we have found peace and we pull together for God's purposes in the real world. And this unity in Jesus Christ, my friends, my friends, this unity in Jesus Christ is the world's great hope. A world that in these days is teetering, teetering. This is the exclusive promise to Abraham flowing inclusively to all nations. See, we hunger, right? We hunger for the opposites to find a way to work together. We love these stories that inspire us in that direction. But the reality is that apart from new life in Christ, apart from living into this vision, this pulling together ultimately crumbles. A crisis may bring clarity of what's really important. A crisis like we're in may expose the teetering idols that we've built our identities around. A crisis can expose the worst of our brokenness. And a crisis can also expose the best of what human beings are capable of as those made in God's image. But the world needs more than good deeds in crisis. The world, our homes, our neighborhoods, the city of change needs the end of hostility. The world needs a new humanity, a people at peace and a people of peace, a people where God dwells by his spirit. And this people, strangers and foreigners, Jews and Gentiles, sinners all, is only possible in Christ and because of Christ. Anything else, anything else you're hoping in will teeter and fall. Woody and Buzz can only unite when they lay down their agendas because Andy loves them both and brought them both together. Elsa and Anna can only unite when they reconcile their pasts and seek the kingdom's good. And you and I, we need to know who we are in Christ and because of Christ. We need to act out the position that God has secured for us as the new humanity, the temple without a dividing wall, a new citizenry from every tribe and nation, the saints in whom God raises from the dead by his spirit. This is the church. This is the ecclesia. This is the vessel of God's plan to bless the nations. And you're a part of it, or you can be through faith in Christ.